Welcome everyone to the Family Medicine Podcast. We explore stories, journeys, opinions, and philosophies within the field of family medicine and primary care. And now, the host of the show, Ross Tanning. Hello and welcome back to the Family Medicine Podcast. Perhaps just welcome for the first time to the podcast. This is episode four with Dr. Julie LaFontano. I'm Ross Tanik. I'm a second year medical student at Rocky Vista University in Colorado. Right now I'm coming to you from Truth Be Told Studios. Um, this uh, interview was actually recorded in the Dean's Conference Room at Rocky Vista. Um, but we'll get to the interview in just a little moment here. First, I want to bring you some good news and tell you how how uh, good the podcast is doing. It's really hitting its stride right now. We have officially gone international with the podcast. We have listeners in, obviously, the United States, but also in Japan, in Myanmar, in Russia, Canada, Australia, and most recently, Saudi Arabia. So I'm really excited uh, about our, our global audience. So hello to everybody all over the globe. Today, we have our first female physician on the podcast, so I'm excited to bring you our conversation. Uh, In it, Dr. LaFontano talks about how she went from being a little girl putting Band-Aids on flowers and declaring that she wanted to be a doctor or that she would be a doctor, to her journey to become a family physician, and she walks us along her journey to get there. We discussed how medicine has changed in the last 20 or so years and what she sees for for the future of medicine. She told us how she ran her practice by spending more time with patients and forming deeper relationships than many of her colleagues. And she also talked about how that affected her bottom line. Kind of on the same topic, she talked about how graduates, recent grads, new grads, and, and residents get sucked into these bad contracts and bad professional situations that don't allow them to be the type of doctor that they want to be or that they always dreamed that they would be. We also discussed gender and sex issues in the field of family medicine, which I thought was very interesting. She also walked us through a couple of important mistakes that she sees both doctors and patients make. And at the end, we had some laughs telling stories about funny moments on the job. Really, to me, her main takeaway is that every provider should focus on listening to give the best care to their patients. So on that note, let's all take a listen to my conversation with Dr. Julie LaFontano. All right, we are recording. Dr. LaFontano, thank you for being here with me and uh, being interviewed on my podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. Um, Would you like to uh, start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, Maybe we can start with uh, when you were just uh, a little kid. I grew up mostly in Littleton, um, in the middle class suburbs. I went to Arapahoe High School. I've got one younger brother. No one in my family was in medicine. Okay. Yep. Had a pretty normal boring, but good childhood. Cool. Did you have experiences with um, family practitioners or uh, primary care practitioners growing up that were memorable at all? 
No, I mean, I had th- my normal well checks as a child, but no family illnesses or reasons to go beyond that. Right. Um, so then when was the first time you started being interested in medicine? It goes further back than I can remember. My parents told me that as soon as I was old enough to verbalize it, I would say I wanted to go into the field. I would put Band-Aids on wilted flowers, kiss their boo-boos, really? tell them I was their doctor when I was a toddler. Wow. And But you didn't really have a, a obvious reason that you, uh, like a role model or something like that, to... Uh to bring you in that direction. No. In fact, I think my family sort of tried to talk me out of it. They thought I was crazy, but um, I wouldn't give up on it. Okay, cool. So that was your vision, your dream for yourself ever since you were a toddler putting putting Band-Aids on flowers, huh? Exactly. I guess you could call it a calling. Yeah. Um, did you feel like you were like wanted to be a doctor or just felt the the, I guess, the call to be a caregiver or something like that? That's a good question. Um, I definitely had a calling to go into the healthcare field. Mm-hmm. I think it was probably my mother that encouraged, you know, if why be the nurse if you can be the doctor? Mm-hmm. Um, so I always knew I was going to go to medical school. Right. But she was also trying to kind of talk you out of it, too, or at least talk you off the ledge a little bit. Yeah, well, they, a lot of questions of why. Why would you do that to yourself? Um, yeah. And if you are going to do it, why not go all the way kind of stuff? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so tell me about kind of how the vision uh, formed or kept forming throughout uh, college or maybe uh, uh, even high school. I had it planned out uh, all the way to the point of graduating medical school. At the time, I was pretty sure I wanted to be a pediatric craniofacial plastic surgery uh, specialist. So okay. I would go to third world countries and fix cleft palates and birth deformities. And that's that was my dream. Um, obviously, that's not what I ended up with. But uh, in high school, I, I took courses at other schools just to audit <coughs> medical classes. In college, I was pre-med all the way. Um, I worked at Craig Hospital. I candy striped when I was, you know, in elementary school. Just everything evolved around that dream. That's so cool. So I kind of want to explore how that dream became your reality uh, or became a different reality for you, I guess. Um, so when did you start realizing or start going away from uh, use a pediatric cranial facial surgery yeah. uh, and more towards family medicine? In medical school, especially on clinical rotations, I enjoyed every rotation that I did. I would spend a month with a urologist and say, wow, this is so fascinating. I could do this. Mm -hmm. And then the next month I would do pediatrics and feel the same way. And then the next month general surgery and then cardiology. And every time I left a month in a certain specialty, I felt a passion for it. So I finally concluded that I had to do a little bit of everything. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I really wanted to have a profession where I could create relationships with people. So mm-hmm. I, I was pretty sure that emergency room medicine or radiology or something like that was not going to work for me. So family medicine it was. That's so cool. I kind of have a, a vision of myself doing the same thing, being like, oh, every rotation is great. I'm super interested in all of them. Um, but that makes sense that you were interested in all of them. So you kind of put them all into... Uh, one profession, which is family med. Yeah, and you can tailor family medicine just about any way you like. If you have a particular passion for sports medicine or women's health or something like that, you can 
choose to do more of that in your family medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also see a little bit of everything else and take on as much as you choose to. I think it's probably the most, um, what's the right word? Um, flexible yeah. of the medical fields. Yeah, it's, it sounds like it. Yeah. Um, I'm coming from a naive place here, but how would one do that? How would one maybe start catering their um, their practice more towards women's health or fam- or uh, I should say a sports med or something like that? Would that be something that starts in residency? Do you need to pick a residency or match with a residency that has you know a focus on that? You can certainly do that. Yeah. And within your residency, you can talk to your residency director. Hey, can you, you know, um, set me up with more of this particular type of family medicine? Um, I got a lot of women's medicine, I think, just because I was a young woman at the time and mm-hmm. women felt more comfortable seeing a female physician. Uh, I couldn't say that that was exactly a passion of mine, but I would say that was a large uh, population of patients that I had, and I was totally fine with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you go into your own practice, and this is something that I'm kind of jumping the gun with here, but there was a more flexibility to create your own practice when you were hanging your own shingle 20, 30 years ago than there might be today or in the next decade. Uh Um, so I'm not sure if it will be as easy for you new grads to create your own type of family medicine environment as it was a while ago. Right. And now it's just become more of a, a corporate entity than a, uh, you know, family owned family practice or solo practice or something like that. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest changes I've noticed since I've been in practice. I was um, I started directly out of residency working in a private practice with another physician. And I. I didn't care for the pace and the required number of patients that I was to see in that time frame, I felt that it didn't give me the opportunity to spend enough time with each patient to get to know that individual and provide the kind of health care that I felt that they needed. So I felt I was lacking in my job, and I knew that the patients felt that their concerns weren't fully addressed. Mm-hmm. So I branched out on my own and became my own independent provider for the last 15 years with a mid-level and decided to see maybe half the number of patients that a typical family practice office would see so that I could spend more time in patient education, preventative health care, really those special touches that I think a primary care physician should do, mm-hmm. personal phone calls. I would even write letters to patients and send them like, oh, my condolences on your uh, loss of your spouse, even if that spouse wasn't my patient, or right. you know, um, mailing their copy of their recent lab works. I would written out, you know, I want you to consider this and that and pay attention to this, so they could have it in their hands if I felt that was helpful for them, particularly. Um, so I made half the salary, probably, as most of my colleagues by doing that. But mm-hmm. I loved what I did. I felt happy going into the office every day. My patients told me over and over again how thrilled they were that they had a doc that they could sit down and really talk with. I think the more time you spend with a patient and the quality of your time that you give them, the more they open up, the more you learn about them, the more opportunity presents itself to treat or counsel on so many different levels. Yeah. 
Oh, wow, I have so many questions. <laughs> I just want to go a million different directions <laughs> with this. Um, I guess one of my questions is, does it break down kind of linear, linearly like that, where it's you have half the patients, or sorry, you spend, you know, yeah, you have twice the time with a patient, thus you have half the patients, thus you have half the salary. Um, is that the way you can kind of do the math on it? I mean, it's not a, a direct linear relationship. If you mm -hmm. spend 30 minutes with a patient and you address three different topics, you can bill for each topic and you can upgrade okay. uh, how much you charge based on your time. Mm -hmm. But even that doesn't correlate to seeing three patients in that 30 minute time frame you know, that my colleague may do. Right. So I did definitely make less money. Yeah. But I made enough to pay off my student loans and to lead a comfortable life. Um, so I, I don't regret it at all. And I couldn't have done it without the help of a mid-level, I have to say. Um, Who were you working with? Is it a PA or a NP? Yeah. Through my last 15 years, I had mostly physician assistants, but I also had a nurse practitioner at a point. So both. Cool. And um, you found that that was a real successful setup for you? Yes, because I really believe that if you invest your time and your care into a patient, they invest their care for you. And so if you say to them, look, I have a child at home that's ill, so I'm sorry, I'm going to cancel your appointment on Monday, they're much more likely to be receptive to that because you've given that same courtesy when they had to cancel an appointment for a sick child or, you know, you develop what you're almost a friendship with your your patients or your clients that they respect your time and your life outside of the office just as much as you respect theirs mm -hmm. and so that's how i did my work life balance and in those instances having a mid level present who could maybe pick those appointments up mm -hmm. or if i wanted to take a day off to go on a field trip with my children from their school and having my mid levels do you know those urgent, you know, sore throats or uh, med refill appointments was priceless. So then I could keep my practice going and still balance it with my life. That's so cool. That seems like a, a really successful setup for you and, and your patients. I know one thing you said maybe five or so minutes ago uh, that you started off in more of a uh, conventional setup where you had, you know, I'm guessing less than 10 minutes with a patient, uh, on average, and you said one thing that kind of stood out to me that you can't give them the health care that they need or, or that they deserve in that way, but that's how so many practitioners are doing it. That's how family medicine or primary care in general is, is set up, which is just a, kind of scary to me, that, uh, and it kind of makes sense that we have you know, such uh, health scourges and health problems in this country. Yeah, I totally agree. Unfortunately, I think as new grads, you will be tempted with large corporations offering you signing bonuses and great benefits to come on and, and with, with dollar signs in your eyes and coming out with such debt, you may sign on that dotted line and then you'll find that you've sort of been contracted to see 40 to 50 patients a day, not including all their paperwork and rounding in the hospital and doing all these procedures. And it sucks the life out of you because mm -hmm. you just never feel like you get a chance to complete uh, what you've learned. You've been trained to, to develop these relationships with patients and to patient educate and uh, listen. I think that's so, so important. Listen. You can't do that in 10 minutes. Right. Yeah. 
that is a scary situation. I can <laughs> just picture it right now. Yeah. Um, and uh, and like I was saying, just to think of how many people are going through that and they probably feel maybe trapped in that cycle um, because of the obscene amount of debt that they carry uh, in their first couple years out of uh, out of residency. Um, did you ever regret being in family medicine as opposed to ch- choosing a, a specialty? Um, do you ever feel like you were maybe limited by your huge scope of practice? I was definitely limited, and that's what a referral is for. Right. I don't think I had any regrets, though, no. I had such amazing relationships. It opened my eyes to degrees of humanity that I didn't know before mm-hmm. going into practice. Yeah, and then on the contrary, would you, if you were to have chosen to be a you know, pediatric cranial facial surgeon, um, do you think you would have felt uh, limited there or just, you know, um, pigeonholed? Yeah, you know, after your 100th cleft palate repair, I would imagine you might be interested in what's going on with that kidney over there, you know. Um, sure. <laughs> Plus, you know, my dream was always oh, going to go to third world countries and I was going to do the world this great service. And as romantic as that is, I got married and had a family. Mm-hmm. And uh, that trumped, you know, that choice of a profession right there. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's kind of beautiful. Um, it sounds like you're happy with that. Definitely. Yeah. And so now you get to spend more time with your kids um, as you left your practice and kind of transferred into uh, academic uh, family medicine. Yeah, that was a huge left-hand turn for me, not something that I had planned upon. Um, But some things occurred, and I'm here, and I'm going to make the most of it. I think it's really exciting, actually, to be able to be involved in the teaching of future physicians um, I was, um, I was kind of wondering in, in molding these young medical minds, do you have a guiding philosophy or, you know, set of principles or motto or any kind of thing that is, is helping you, uh, you know, be, be a teacher in that way? I have a sense of guiding principles that I am hoping I'm extending to the students that I'm working with. And that is listen Take the time to listen. Your patients will pick up on the fact if you are rushed or not paying attention. Mm -hmm. You really have to give your undivided attention and listen and care. Ask follow-up questions. And then follow up that appointment with a phone call or a follow-up visit or something. Don't drop the ball afterward. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to do that because you will be rushed and you will have a lot of other things on your mind while you're sitting there and... Mrs. Smith is telling you about her cats, but you have to you have to let her go through her cats before she'll tell you that maybe her husband is having an affair. I mean, she's got to earn that trust um, and that degree of confidence with you before she'll open up. Mm-hmm. I also hope that I can encourage future students to stay humble, to admit that they don't know everything and ask for help if they need to. I think that goes a long way with a patient. If you just say, look, I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll either find out or find you somebody else who can. Mm -hmm. So that sense of humility and being humble is also important. Was that what you asked me? 
<laughs> I, I think it's a good answer. <laughs> uh, I mean, we were talking about, um, yeah, how you teach uh, um, students in, uh, in medical school. So those are all good things to impart on, uh, you know, young budding minds and, uh, and future physicians. Um, I, th- I think that actually the last point you just made uh, is a good transition because I kind of wanted to ask if you could uh, give us a little case presentation of some sort. Um, and the last thing you were just talking about was not knowing everything or not being able to help everybody in every way all the time. Um, and uh, I like it when uh, physicians can give us a case that was difficult or never m- really got a, an answer or a definitive diagnosis. So. Um, uh, I'd be interested to hear what um, you have to say on that. I don't know if it was where I practiced regionally or if it was just because I was a solo practitioner. I'm not sure why, but I had a whole lot of incredibly interesting cases. Um, I didn't traditionally do, you know, runny noses and, and sore throats. I mean, I certainly had those, but I had a lot of interesting cases. So it'd be hard for me to choose one. I was actually thinking of this earlier, and I think probably if I had to choose one, I would tell you about a woman that I knew for several years who seemed a little on edge or just a little off. Mm -hmm. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And after several different office visits for management of her hypertension, she finally kind of leaned in and whispered to me, have you ever noticed when you're talking to someone, if you spray them with water, they dissolve into a pile of bugs. I haven't noticed that. Yeah, neither had I. (laughs) But obviously, right then and there, I knew there was a psych issue, uh, possibly, or likely a schizophrenic, you know, hallucinations type of thing. Um, And so over several different appointments, I tried to talk to her more about this. She was so tentative to talk about it. And it wasn't that it was a difficult to reach a diagnosis case, it was difficult to get her to admit that it might not be real and that taking a medication would help. Mm-hmm. Um, I would eventually get her to this point where she would agree to take a prescription, but then she would never take it. She'd come back and follow up. She always made her follow-up appointments. I didn't scare her away, but she'd come back for follow-up and say, yeah, I went on Google and I found that this medication had this side effect and so I never took it. Okay. I was on the verge of getting her to a psychiatrist when she said, yeah, no, no, I'm not going to. Um, And she was never a risk or a harm to herself or others, and so I didn't have to really push the issue. But I couldn't imagine living with those types of hallucinations. And so this went on for years and unfortunately never came to a resolution. I could not get her to commit to seeing anyone else or trying a medication, so she's probably out there spraying people with water still. Maybe. Um, wow, that sounds um, so difficult to deal with those like persistent mental illness uh, yeah. issues. Um, was that a common type of case that you'd get in, in family practice, or was that more of a, a rarity? That particular case was a bit more rare, but psych, I'd say, was a very large portion of family practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt a little unprepared coming out of residency 25 years ago mm-hmm. um, for a, all the psych that I dealt with in practice. Because I, I believe that a person is a, is a combination of physical, mental, and spiritual health. And mm-hmm. so 
Um, you can always try and fix their boo-boos, but if their mental or spiritual health is not healthy, it's going to spill into their physical health as well. And so I spent a lot of time learning about psych and trying to fill those gaps for people, even if about just being a, a couch therapist for a few minutes. Right. But there was a lot of mental health. And we're sorely lacking in mental health support, in, at least in Colorado, I think nationally. Yeah, I've heard that from another um, family physician in Colorado who said that Colorado particularly has, um, I guess, so much of the psych needs fall on family practice physicians. Um, I don't know really why that is uh, Colorado compared to the rest of the United States, but probably it's a whole country issue as well. Yeah. I think it is national. It may be that Colorado with it, I mean, it's a pretty rapid growing population and we just don't have the specialists and to deal with them. So emergency rooms and family practitioners tend to deal with most of it. Right. Right. Um, very interesting. I kind of want to talk about how we got to the state of, uh, healthcare in the United States that we're at right now and, and what you thought the future of, uh, I guess, healthcare in general and also family practice uh, is. I know you kind of talked about the corporate takeover of, of uh, solo or um, small private family practice practices. Um, where do you really see it going? You said in 10 years it's going to just get worse? Um, I predict if it's going the same direction that it's been going for the last couple decades, that it will get worse and we'll start using telemedicine more Mm -hmm. and those large companies, Kaiser health one that, um, kind of cue people through multiple different specialists and you lose a lot of that doctor patient relationship that way. Yeah. Um, I don't know how that can be rectified because I think the pace at which we are learning more fascinating types of medicine and treatments and diagnostic skills, it's hard for one provider to be up on all of it. So family practitioners tend to have to refer more. And it's not uncommon for a patient to have multiple specialists just to manage, you know, a couple different comorbidities. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're going to see as we learn more and more about the human body, human body, we'll probably see more subspecialists and more um, coordination of care between specialists for the same patient. I think that that does interfere with that building of a relationship that I think is so important between a primary care doc and a patient. Yeah, I, I actually... Um I was just thinking when you said subspecialists, I was thinking there's, you know, subspecialists in family med, kind of like we already talked about. You can go into more women's health or sports med were the two examples we threw threw out earlier. Um, And you've done some uh, work with preventive medicine um, throughout your practice. Tell me about how that works or, um, yeah, just tell me about how that works. Because I was my own boss, so to speak, um, I would spend as much time as I possibly could with each patient on preventative medicine. Mm-hmm. I really feel like that's your touchstone in, in family practice. If you can teach a patient how to prevent disease, maybe you don't have to treat as much disease. Right. Um, and so there was a big emphasis in my personal qu- practice. I don't know how my colleagues who get 10 minutes for three different medical complaints from one patient have the chance at all to sit down and do any patient education. Right. Um, but I felt that that was really important. Yeah, and I don't know if that'll 
change in the future to here, sit down and watch this video or right. um, take home this this pamphlet or, you know, you just lose that connection, I think. Definitely. Um, and so, so how would that, I guess I'm trying to picture how exactly that would work. I come to you, I'm your patient and maybe I have slightly high elevated blood pressure, let's say, um, what are you doing for me at that time? You're not treating it pharmacologically. Um, but what will you be telling someone, somebody with that simple complaint? Well, clearly there are manipulable lifestyle habits that you want to intervene with, tobacco, alcohol, diet, exercise, weight management, how sedentary are you, all of those things you go through, and um, if there's room for improvement, you encourage. Mm -hmm. Um, You can't manipulate age, family history, gender, uh, so whatever is available that you can make an improvement on to, to take that risk away from that patient you should. Yeah, that's great. I think, you know, like you said, it's more about the building of the relationship than anything. And if you have to listen to her, the story about their cats to, to get in, then, then that's how you're going to get in. Right. When you said, uh, you can't manipulate, uh, some things, um, it, and you said gender as one of them, uh, it really just reminded me that you're the first female practitioner on this podcast, and I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about um, what it was like to be a female in medicine. I think you kind of alluded to it earlier, um, but was it difficult to be a female in med school? I believe the year that I graduated med school was the first year that nationally we graduated just as many women as men. Mm -hmm. And I think it's actually tilting a little bit that there are now more women in medicine that sounds familiar to me, but I, I don't know the numbers. Yeah. Okay, so say I was kind of on the, the that verge there yeah. um, a while back. I, de- I did have an attending physician tell me once that I would never be taken seriously because I was an attractive female. And wow. that just made me work harder. <laughs> right. And I've had male patients uh, cross the line, and I had one pinch my rear. Right. Um, you know, there... I don't know if it's going to be quite as prevalent nowadays when the Me Too movement and with as many women out there in medicine as there are now as it was 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, but I had a few little instances and it just made me want to succeed and prove people wrong even more. Yeah. Well, that's that's good motivation, I suppose. Um, and I know earlier you said that um, females might want a female physician to be their, um, to be their physician, especially for female issues. Um, does that also hold true with males would like a, a male uh, practitioner? So you got less of that? Um, I definitely had men who said they would not want me as their primary care physician just because they didn't feel comfortable having me do their prostate exam or their testicular exam. Um, I had equal number of men that said they'd rather a woman do it than a man do it. So, right. um, I think for men, it kind of went both ways. I do think that women sought out other women. Um, I saw a lot of women that preferred to see a female physician because we kind of air quotes here, understand what we're going through in sure. terms of hormones or in terms of you know, women's rights or whatever their concern was at that time. Yeah, that so. doesn't sound wild to me because like you, we've been talking about is just the understanding, the relationship, the... Uh, 
the vibe between two people is so much a part of what we're talking about here. Yeah, the connection. Right, right, the connection. That's a good word. Um, one other thing that I was thinking about with that, I was thinking kind of recently as a male in family medicine, I wonder how if you're ever limited by people not wanting to bring their kids to you or if that is just a, a non-issue. Good question. Um, I, I felt honored as a woman to, to legitimately have family practice in, in that I took care of multiple generations. Right. As a man, I, I can't imagine that that would be a problem. If you still exuded the same type of patience and warmth, yeah. why wouldn't someone bring their children to you? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I was kind of coming at it from a perspective of, I know that some parents may just want to have a female babysitter just for this fact that they're a female. All things being equal, they know nothing about a male babysitter and a female babysitter. They're both in the phone book in this hypothetical example. Uh, Then I feel like more parents would choose the female, but I'm not a parent and I'm, I'm not a family physician, so I don't know. Almost the other end of a little sexism there, huh? Uh, maybe so, but, uh, um, but who knows? So, well, I'd actually like to get into a couple other topics here. Um, ah, yes. I wanted to, um, ask about mistakes that are made, not necessarily obvious medical errors like uh, leaving the forceps in a, in a surgical patient or something like that, but what are kind of some general mistakes people make? And let's start from the practitioner side, but I also want to ask about uh, the patient side of things. From the practitioner side, I think one of the biggest mistakes is you can walk into a room and nail it in terms of making that connection with the patient. And they can leave your office feeling like they've been heard and that their medical concerns were addressed appropriately. They can feel really great. Mm -hmm. If you don't follow through, that's a big mistake. Yeah. I noticed a lot of my colleagues that this is a mistake that they make because it all has, it all boils down to time. You spend all your time with the patient, and then you spend all this time outside of patient hours documenting, talking to insurance companies, getting prior authorizations, all that kind of paperwork and admin stuff. Sure. Then you also have to find the time to personally call that patient when their labs come in or reach out to them if you just got a consult across your desk because over the weekend they had to have their appendix out. Give them a call. My gosh, I just got this. How are you? Do you need anything from me as your primary care doc? Those extra little steps, that little hand-holding and those nice touches, just continue that I care, I'm listening, I'm here for you, feeling for that patient. And if you are great one-on-one in a little exam room for whatever amount of time you give them, and then you never follow through outside of that, your patients, they'll lose that faith in you. Right. And I bet that's also a good time, uh, a good time to uh, follow up on education stuff as well and just, or just gives an, an uh, extra opportunity to add more uh, educational uh, components to your treatment. Right. You can tell someone to stop smoking and then they can leave your office. If you call them three days later and say, hey, so how's it going? You're going to be more effective. Yeah. It's just added reinforcement to your original 
exactly. uh, your original thing there. Uh, absolutely. That makes uh, perfect sense to me. And um, it's kind of funny because one of the mistakes that you talked about earlier in the in the podcast was the mistake of getting lured in by the signing bonus and maybe the higher salary um, from a, a more corporate healthcare system, um, which doesn't allow you to have that time. And like you just kind of talked about right there, time is or not utilizing that time is a huge mistake Definitely. in, in terms of uh, giving patients proper care. Um, what about from a patient side? I can just kind of picture a couple of ideas of what you might say to this, but um, what are things that patients do wrong? I think there are a couple things that I felt that patients could do wrong, and that would be not telling the truth. Mm -hmm. If you ask them if they smoke and they say, well, now and then, and they're a two-pack a day, or they just don't want to tell you, maybe they're afraid that you'll judge them, or um, not being open in a confidential setting where they have the opportunity to be truthful and they're not. That's a mistake that they can make. Um, and another one is kind of the opposite where they they book this you know, follow-up appointment for 15 minutes or in my case maybe even 30 minutes, but they bring a list of 20 different concerns that they want to go through and they expect that everyone will be addressed and completely resolved by the end of their appointment. Um, and they need to understand that doctors have other patients and have a scheduled day. And there were a couple of times that even after 30 minutes, my patients were like, I'm not done. You can't leave. Um, and they'd get angry. I paid a copay to come and see you, and I have 20 things on this list that I want to address before you go. So they need to understand and respect the doctor's time um, and reschedule if necessary. Yeah. Um, so you said that you weren't super well equipped or well trained out of your residency to deal with psych issues like the one you described earlier. Um, tell me about your residency uh, because I kind of am curious, did it match up to your expectations of what residency was going to be? Um, so let's start with that question. Yeah, I think I had a great residency. It was probably one of the most favorite parts of my cl clinical training was mm -hmm. my residency. Um, I did my family practice residency at Michigan State University. Yep. I was actually voted chief resident, so I think I had an experience different than most of my colleagues. Um, and I, I thought it did a very good job of preparing me. I, the only thing I think that I wish I'd had more preparation is that in residency, they do allow you the time to go through all of your uh, screens and questions and do your patient education. And, and you get like five or six patients during a clinic afternoon mm -hmm. so that you can have the time to go through it all. And then boom, you're in practice and somebody tells you, now you see hmm. 30 an hour. Um, and I wasn't prepared. I didn't feel uh, ready to make that transition. And maybe that's just me personally and that's why I couldn't stay at the first practice that I stayed with, I didn't feel, I couldn't sleep at night. I mean, like I didn't, I didn't get a chance to talk about blah blah blah. I didn't address this issue. I, I rushed out of the room. Right. I didn't make a good connection. All those things. So They're on just my own, going through your head at, at night. You said, "Yep, wow, yeah, that makes sense." Um, you said um, that you weren't prepared to go from like a longer. 
uh, time with the patient to a shorter time with the patient, I'm thinking that sounds kind of crazy to me. I, that's not what I have in res, uh, in my mind as what residency is, where you actually do have more time with the patient. Maybe things have changed, um, but is that common to for a resident to ha- just kind of have more time like that? I've only done one residency, so okay, I'm not fair enough. <laughs> not sure, but um, yeah, because in residency you are still being. Uh, you're still under the wing of an attending physician. So you would go in and do your evaluation and then leave the room, discuss it with your attending. You know, if there were some changes they wanted to make, you'd go back in and talk to the patient again. And so it was still as a learning experience, they give you a lot more time. Um, So going right into practice and being the, where the buck stops with you, the the one that's responsible for whatever decision that you make and having to make it in such a short period of time and knowing that it affects this person's health, I wasn't prepared. I needed more time. Okay. Would would it be a, a good move to kind of slowly, incrementally start bringing that time down throughout your maybe second and third year totally. residency? That would, that, that would be one suggestion you'd have? Absolutely. And maybe they do that now. Okay. I don't, I'm not sure. Right. Right. Um, well, was there anything that you wish you knew about family medicine before could be at any time in in your life, really, uh, that you know now, but you wish you knew earlier? I think most of those things we've kind of touched on, and that's that I wish I knew that traditionally the larger companies um, would want you to see large amounts of patients. So they'd say, you have to make this amount of money for us. Mm-hmm. You have to... Um, do this many procedures and charge this amount and it's a big business and not people. Um, So we touched on that and I wish I had known that before I originally signed on to the practice I joined right out of residency. Mm -hmm. Um, But other than that, I can't say there were any big surprises. I do want to make a point of saying that I never had a day in family medicine that I was bored. Not that, one. That's cool. Well, that's a good uh, kind of happy note. I kind of want to end on a, an even happier note. If you can recall and regale us with a, a tale, it doesn't have to be a good story or anything, but of just a funny moment or maybe it's the funniest moment, but it doesn't have to be the funniest, but a, a very funny moment or time that you had uh, in your practice. There are so many. Um, Let me tell you just a couple, and they're very brief. Sure. I was the treating physician on TLC's My Strange Addiction for a woman who drank her own urine. Okay. I have had, oh, I had a woman come in complaining of abdominal pain, and she spoke no English. So I tried to pantomime how to leave a urine sample. That sounds she fun. went into the little <laughs> restroom and in the little pass-through window, she had managed to leave a stool sample in the tiny little urine cup on demand, right? Then that's very impressive. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had a gentleman walk in and he was probably 40. I was meeting him for the first time and I asked him, you know, what can I do for you? And he goes, well, you know, I'm 40. I, gosh, I've never even had a pap smear. So you have to try not to, right? Know, try to keep a straight face on that, and um, just 
people are fascinating and funny. And um, if you just keep your sense of humor and, I mean, you can joke with people. Um, I had a patient that was pushing 500 pounds and it was difficult for even to get into the practice to see me. Mm -hmm. And she had this huge growth coming off of her leg and she named it Steve and she would (laughs) rub it and talk about Steve while we were going through our history (laughs) together. And I mean, just so many things. Yeah, I bet a lot of a lot of characters you meet. Oh, definitely. Big time, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. The story of uh, leaving the stool sample in the urine sample cup reminds me of one where I was working in uh, adolescent mental health, and if somebody was sick, um, we were kind of outdoors in a camp-like environment. <clears throat> Excuse me, and um, so we have to have them. Uh, you know, do a bowel movement onto a, a bunch of toilet paper in the porta potty. And so one of my coworkers was explaining, okay, so, you know, we need to just see if you have loose stool. And so we want you to put a bed of toilet paper down and then you poop onto that. Okay, great. And we're working <laughs> with teenagers and they're hilarious already. Yes. Um, but then this one, um, was like, comes out of the porta potty after receiving the instructions. She's like, "Okay, I did it. You want to go in there and check?" And then <laughs> I go in there and check, and it was not in the toilet. It was on the floor, like the in the foyer, <laughs> if oh, you will, no. of of the porta potty. And uh, I couldn't breathe for for ten minutes just because I was laughing, not because of <laughs> any other reason that might uh, make it difficult to breathe. Well, they but, did what you asked, right? Right. I know. I didn't see that one coming, though. But uh, it, it makes you be very intentional with your words. So. Yeah. Um, well, that's great. I want to be respectful of your time, and I, I really appreciate all, all your insights and thoughts and uh, stories that you've told us. Uh, here today, but if you could just leave us, and uh, when I say us, I mean me and anyone listening, uh, with any advice or um, inspirational quotes or anything that's on your mind uh, for the future. Advice and inspirational quotes. Hmm. I guess I'd say, listen. I mean, truly listen and stay humble. Remember that at some point you're going to be on the other side of that desk as a patient and treat each one of your patients the way you'd hope your doctor would treat you. So have humility and listen. No, that's great. That's beautiful. Those are uh, great words to go out on. So thank you so much, Dr. LaFontana. I appreciate you being on the podcast. Thanks, Russ. fun. I love talking to Dr. LaFontano about her journey. She had so much to say about her life as a family doc and the road she took through residency and how she set up her private practice and why she did so. I felt like I learned a lot and I hope that all of you took something from this conversation and possibly from other conversations that we've uh, released on the podcast. So on a closing note, I want everybody to remember to send in any questions or topics that you would like to be addressed on the podcast. Send those to familymedicinepodcast at gmail.com, and that way 
you can uh, participate and get your questions about the field answered. Also, please send any potential guests my way. Same email address, familymedicinepodcast at gmail.com. All right, well, that's about all I have to say. I hope you guys enjoyed. Let's play it out with a rockin' song by the handsome fellas in the delicious dishes. The song is called The Universe. Now just add a little pizzazz, you know what I'm saying? Thanks for listening to the Family Medicine Podcast. Remember to subscribe, follow, like, or whatever you do to show your dignity. Tune in next time. Her uterus was the universe, and it bloomed and birthed the moon and the earth. Nothing ever happened till it was observed by the first animals with optic nerves. It was a fight for survival. Many died though. Friends were formed to fight mutual rivals. Man and woman appeared and they realized there was a thing called love bringing joy into their lives. Boom, they were civilized. Went from stones and bones to phones and drones as many kings took the throne. Built empires and the story's well known. History ticks along like a metronome. And then I came to be walk talk and throw stuff all grown up i got a job now and showing up i'm sleep deprived i'm misaligned my appetite is primed to feed the ego almost all the time and then i met you lovely and smooth you quickly removed my modern man's blues i want to celebrate every breath that i take because i'm afraid i'm dreaming and i don't want to wait so baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The universe was my universe. But I left to pursue the search of love But sometimes it hurt along the way If there's anything I've learned Create a garden Plant flowers in the dirt I'm gonna be the sunshine and rain Protect you from the pain As I push you toward the flames Play the game and wonder Am I the hunted or the hunter? When I was younger I met God and I hugged her She said, hey baby Instead of getting lost within How about you try to walk a mile in my moccasin Stop, begin Let the thoughts and visions Guide you further down the road Going inch by inch Don't sprint it slow protect your soul travel long and far but make sure to come home because the love that's here is what keeps you going and gives you the power and the freedom to grow let's giggle and laugh and rise up through the stress this life is crazy but it's the goddamn best when life gets complex don't think just do it first it was simpler when the uterus was so big let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The uterus was my universe. The uterus was my universe. The uterus was my universe. And then I met you. The uterus was my universe. The uterus was my walk a mile in my moccasin. The uterus was my universe. The uterus was my universe. The uterus was my universe. And then I met you. The uterus was my universe. This life is crazy, but it's the goddamn best. When the uterus was my universe. So baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold. Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know.